Would you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 9? We're going to start at verse 30 and work our way through chapter 10. Listen to what Paul writes, beginning in chapter 9, verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I asked, does Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Let's pray. Father, would you take your word this morning and help us to understand it, not only how it applied in Paul's generation, but also to us today and to the world in which we live and serve. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week in chapter 9, we talked about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. 
And we said there that God's sovereignty and divine election does not take away from our human responsibility that both are true in the Scripture. And I also made the comment of how interesting it is how often God puts these things side by side, sometimes in the very next verse or in this case, in the very next chapter. Romans 9 is about God's sovereignty. Romans 10 is about human responsibility. Romans 9 looks at salvation from God's perspective. Romans 10 looks at salvation from our point of view. And if Calvinists like chapter 9, and they do, then Arminians love chapter 10, and both are true. In theology, the view that both are true is called compatibilism. It is the belief that God's absolute sovereignty is compatible with human responsibility and real human choices. That those two things are taught in Scripture and they go hand in hand. And how all of that works out in the mind of God to us may be a mystery, but to Him it is not. And just like a train needs two rails to run on, we also need to hold on to both of those truths that are taught in Scripture. You see, sometimes when people hear about divine election or God's sovereignty, they equate that with sort of a fatalism, that, well, if God knows it all, then, you know, what's the point? I mean, there's nothing that we could do. Why should we evangelize or why should we send out missionaries? But that's not the case. That God uses people like you and me, believers, to be the means to bring the gospel to those who have never heard before. We see a similar thing in the area of prayer. Or, for example, Jesus says that our Father knows what we need before we even ask Him, and yet He commands us to pray. And our prayers make a real difference in the world and the lives of people and in our own life. Both are true, and we hang on to both. We are the people that God has chosen to be His witnesses in this world. When we look at the world population, we see that currently there are about 6.8 billion people in the world, we are told. That's a lot, isn't it? It's hard to even imagine a number that big. And we are told that about 2.1 billion are Christians. That would include, you know, those that are true believers as well as those who nominally would call themselves a Christian but may not yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ personally. So that leaves about 4.7 billion people in the non-Christian world. They are Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims. They are atheists and they are involved in tribal religions and all kinds of different groups. And out of that group, we're told that there's about 2 billion people that do not have a gospel witness in close proximity to them. They don't live uh, in an area where there would be a church or any Christians that they know. So how are they going to hear about Jesus Christ? How are they going to come to believe in Him unless someone brings that message to them? And in the last 30 years, for example, there have been huge advances in terms of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth as Christians, different churches and agencies have tried to divide up the pie and say, okay, well, we're going to work here. We will work here. And in a very cooperative way, they are seeking to bring translations of the Scripture and to start a church-planting movement among these unreached people groups. But it is still a huge task. And what is our responsibility as Christians? Our responsibility is to join with God in that great mission. 
In this particular chapter, there are three things that I want to highlight that I believe Scripture calls us to do. Number one, we are to love the lost. We are to love those who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we see that in the example of Paul and the way that he related to his own people, the Jews, as well as to the Gentiles. You probably have heard the statement that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. There's a lot of truth in that, isn't it? I mean, when we talked about evangelism, cold turkey evangelism or just going to knock on doors or kind of a hit-and-run approach isn't very effective. On occasion, God will use that to bring someone to Christ who He has prepared. But you know the best way to do evangelism is through relationships. Building friendships, getting to know people so that they know you and they see the love of Christ in you. And God uses that to plant seeds for the gospel. What we see in the Apostle Paul is that he cared deeply about his brothers and sisters, his fellow Jews. In verse uh, 1 of chapter 10, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Uh, Paul cared so much that he would pray for them regularly. In chapter 9, he said how he could wish that he himself were accursed if that meant their salvation. You know, if I could lay down my life for them and that would mean their salvation, Paul was willing to do that. But he could not. Only Jesus Christ could. And he had already done that. Christ came that all people might come into a relationship with God. And he is the one who makes that salvation possible. And when Paul went from city to city, we read in the book of Acts how he would go to the Jew first. He'd start in the synagogues preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ. And if they heard, great. If they rejected him, he would turn to the Gentiles. And he would bring the good news to all who would listen. God calls us to do that too. Sometimes the simplest things can open a door for the gospel. And it's amazing to see when F.B. Meyer became the pastor of Christ Church in England, he was concerned that his church was made up mostly of middle class and wealthy people living in the area. But their neighborhood was changing, and there were poor people living around the church, and they weren't doing a very effective job of reaching them. And so one day he went for a walk through the neighborhood, and as he was walking, he met a man who was a garbage collector going about his work. And F.B. Meyer came up to him and stuck out his hand to greet him and shake his hand. And the man said, oh no, my, my hand's not fit for the likes of you. He felt kind of dirty or filthy because of his work. And F.B. Meyer said that there's lots of soap and water at Christ Church. Take my hand. That simple act of kindness and greeting had an impact upon that man. And when some of his friends came up to join him, he said, hey, I want you to meet this new pastor. He was willing to shake this filthy hand and they said, well, if he's willing to do that, he'll do to listen to as well. And they came to visit his church. Sometimes just that simple act of kindness can open a door for the gospel. When you as students see someone else at school and you reach out to them and you initiate a friendship or just a conversation with them, God might use that to open a door for the gospel. When you and your neighborhood reach out to someone that you don't know and in an act of kindness, maybe you uh, welcome a new neighbor or you bring something over to their home, a simple act like that might begin a friendship that could lead to an invitation to come to know Christ. 
When I think about the work that Diane Shimaleski has done in a closed access country on the other side of the world, a large part of what helped to plant some seeds in the area where she worked was the child sponsorship program that many of you are involved in where we help to support some kids who don't have the financial means to go on in school and we help them by providing some resources that can provide for food or schooling or education and because of that their parents have wanted to know more and hearts have been opened to the gospel and a church has been planted in that area by a simple act of kindness done by people halfway around the world. God calls us to look for those kind of opportunities and ways that we can minister to others who have not heard. But secondly, in evangelism, God also calls us to expose the error, the errors of false doctrine or wrong beliefs that keep people in darkness. And we see that here in this passage as well. Why did Israel not believe in Christ? Well, in verses 30 and following, Paul says ultimately it was because they stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over Jesus Christ, who was an offense to them. I mean, he didn't fit the model of what they thought the Messiah would be like. They thought that when the Messiah came, he'd be this conquering king and would restore Israel to greatness, that he would associate with the the rich and the priests and those who were in power at that time. And instead, Jesus came. And who did he hang around with? He ate with sinners and tax collectors, those that were looked down upon by others in their society. And that was an offense to them. And ultimately, the greatest offense was when he would hang on a cross for our sins and become a curse for us. And they didn't understand how, if he was the Messiah, he could do that. And many refused to believe. Now think about that. I mean, here is a people that had all of the privileges. They had the Word of God. They had the Law, the Prophets, the Divine Glory. They had seen the miracles that God had done, and yet they missed it. They thought that salvation was something that you could earn by keeping the commandments. They pursued it as though it were by works and not by faith. And that was their fatal error. What's sad is that people also do that today. There are people who grow up in Christian families who miss the whole point. There are people who have attended church all their life and they think that if they go to church or if they pray a prayer or if they put something in the offering, that they're in. When the heart of Christianity is not something that we do, we could never earn His favor. The heart of Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That He is the one who has done the work and it is finished when he died on the cross for our sins and what he asks of us is to humble ourselves and to come and admit our sin and confess it to him and ask him to forgive us and be our savior and lord so how can we help a religious person see that salvation is not by works but by grace through faith in jesus christ well that can be very hard to do if you've tried you know that sometimes people can even take offense if you suggest that they are a sinner or that they might not be a believer. It is a work of the Holy Spirit who really softens our hearts and opens our eyes to see the truth of God's Word. So what's our part? 
Well, we are to pray. We are to pray that their eyes would be opened. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us that if someone has not seen the glory of Christ, it's because the God of this world has blinded their eyes. And we need to pray that their eyes would be opened to the truth of God's Word and that those scales would fall off, just like what happened with the Apostle Paul and his conversion. We are also to tear down strongholds of the enemy. We are to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we are to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. God has given us that authority to do that through His Word. You probably know people that are Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons or involved in another group that would be considered a cult. You may even work with people that are into Wicca or New Age religions or things like that. And you may wonder, how, how do I share the gospel with them? What is it that they really believe or how can I expose the air? Well, we live in a time when there are some pretty good resources that we can use to help us in that task. And we are blessed with that in our church as well. I want to mention a couple books this morning uh, that I've used. One I've used for many years is The Kingdom of the Cults. It was written by Walter Martin. And it's an excellent resource on the cults. I use this whenever I'm dealing with people that are into either a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness or other groups like that that are quite common. And this will give you excellent information on what they believe and how it differs from true Christianity. And a newer book that came out recently is called The Kingdom of the Occult. It was put together by Jill Rishi, who has written it. And what you may not know, some of you do know, but Kevin and Jill Rishi are attending our church. And they've been coming here for some time. They've uh, been leading the Vesper service on Sunday evening. But I want to ask Jill to stand up. Kevin's actually in an ABF teaching this morning, just so you can uh, know who she is and, and see her. And this is a huge task that she's been involved in on writing and putting together the resources to help us and help Christians all over the world in being more effective in sharing their faith. You know, if you'd like to get these resources, you can do that at a Christian bookstore, or you can contact them about getting the resources. I'm going to leave these here, and after the service, if you just want to take a look at them, uh, you can come up to the front and do that as well. But these are tremendous tools and helps. Um, Walter Martin is Jill's father, and she and Kevin are carrying on the ministry of Walter Martin Ministries, and they also have a website that you can take a look at, too. When we think about communicating the gospel, we are also to avoid foolish arguments. And that's a good word. There's a difference between getting into a discussion or a debate that is going somewhere and arguments that are kind of futile. And you can tell pretty quickly if somebody's really interested in knowing the answers to a question or whether or not they're just raising smoke screens. And there comes a point where we have to discern then, you know, do we continue in this or maybe we kind of shut things down right now and we just continue to pray and we wait for another opportunity to talk. That takes wisdom and discernment. But Paul admonishes us to stay away from those kind of foolish, foolish arguments that aren't going anywhere. And in the same way, he urges us to correct with gentleness. So often the scripture combines teaching and gentleness together. In 2 Corinthians 2, excuse me, 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, Paul says that those who oppose the Lord's servant, he must gently instruct, 
in hope that God will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now that doesn't mean that we aren't to be bold in our witness. We are. It doesn't mean that we don't have convictions. We do as we state the truth and we are firm in that. But what he's saying is that we're not to be heavy-handed and kind of use the Bible like a club to beat somebody up with it. No, we are to teach with gentleness. Because we recognize that we are sinners too who need God's grace in our life. And we are just trying to share that truth with somebody else who hasn't yet come to that point. And that leads me to the third point I'd like to make this morning. That in evangelism, we are to speak the truth. There comes that point where we are to take the step and share the good news of the gospel with those who have never heard. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You and I can't set someone free. It's the power of God and His Word that sets people free. And Paul was so good at knowing his audience so that he could present the gospel in the most effective way. I mean, to the Jew, he spoke like a Jew, and he used the Old Testament frequently. To a Gentile, he became like a Gentile, and he would quote secular writers, he'd quote things that were common in their understanding, because he had lived, in a sense, in both worlds. And you can read through the book of Acts, and you can see how he changed his approach as he was in different cities, depending upon his audience. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 9, 22 and 23, He said, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. To a Jewish audience, he would quote Moses, because they honored and respected Moses. And so in verse 5, he says this, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. In other words, if you want to approach God through the law and you think that you can earn salvation that way, you need to keep it all, perfectly, without exception. But no one could do that. Some of the Jews thought that the way that you merited salvation would be through heroic efforts. But Paul writes in verses 6 and 7, you know, you don't have to go up to heaven to find this truth because Christ has come down for us. And you don't have to search the depths of the earth to try and find the way to God because Jesus died and He rose again. In fact, if you want to know the way of salvation is really quite near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, it's the word of faith that we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's as simple as that. Confess and believe. What does it mean to confess that Jesus is Lord? Well, it means to acknowledge that He is God. That He is God's Son who came down to earth to be our Savior. That He is the Sovereign Lord over all. It means that we recognize that He is worthy of our worship and our praise. And we come to that point where we are yielding our life to Him. To believe means that we believe in our heart with all that we have. I mean, when Paul used the word heart, he used that as the center of our emotions, our intellect and will. It is to believe with all our heart and soul and mind and strength that Jesus died and He rose again. That God raised Him from the dead. That He is our Savior and He is alive today. Now that's not hard, is it? 
But in a nutshell, this is the gospel. It is so simple that a child can understand it. I mean, that's why in our children's ministries, you know, we share the gospel with our kids and there are children who come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. And many of you did as well when you were six or seven or eight or ten in those early years. And you look back on that and you still remember that time in your life. I can. I mean, it's as clear as can be in my mind the time when I was ten and I asked Christ to be my Savior and Lord. It was real. Now at that age, we don't understand all of what the gospel means or what God's going to do in our life. We don't know that. But a child can know that God loves him. That Jesus died for him. And they can come to that point where they genuinely place their trust in him as Savior and Lord. Yet the gospel is also so profound, it is a mystery. As we grow older, we wonder how God could love us so. We wonder how Jesus could become a man and how He could die for sinners like you and me. And we stand amazed at that. The promises of the Gospel are staggering to think that Jesus is preparing a place for us in heaven when He tells us in my Father's home are many rooms and I'm preparing a place there just for you. And one day I'm going to come and take you to be with me so that we can spend eternity together. The gospel invitation is universal. It is for everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, young and old, male and female. It is for all the nations. In fact, God has ordained that one day around His throne, in heaven there will be people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language group on the face of the earth. God loves that kind of rich diversity. He promises that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What a tremendous promise that is. It's actually a quote from the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 32. And what's interesting, in the Old Testament, that word Lord applies to God the Father. But here Paul takes it and he applies it to Jesus Christ. It is another one of the declarations in Scripture that Jesus is God. He is Lord. And one day, every knee on heaven and earth will bow before Him, whether willingly or unwillingly, and they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But how are people going to hear unless someone tells them? Look at verses 14 and 15 again. Paul says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in one whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. That's where our responsibility comes in. Our responsibility is to be a witness for Christ and to bring the gospel to those who have never heard. You know, this morning we have two white roses over here. They're from... Uh, Two people who accepted Christ in the jail this past week. It never would have happened if somebody from our church hadn't taken the initiative to be involved in a jail ministry and to go to those who are incarcerated to share the good news with them. It takes a step of faith on someone's part to be able to do that. Throughout the year in our children's ministry or student ministry or with other adults, we have white roses up from other people who have taken those steps of faith. I told you about Diane working halfway around the world in a closed-access country 
leading people to Christ because of acts of kindness that you've been involved in. You see, sharing the gospel is this joint effort. God is at work calling people to Himself. We are to be at work presenting and sharing the good news. My question to you is, do you see yourself as a representative of Jesus Christ? I mean, do we see ourselves in that way and see the opportunities that are all around us to present the good news? I want to share with you a story uh, that I received this week from Ron and Michelle Backus. And uh, it's a great story that fits this point exactly. And I've been chuckling how over the last, you know, for quite some time, we kind of share stories back and forth. Uh, sometimes on Sunday morning, I'll share an illustration. They'll go, that's great. Could we use that in our ministry? And vice versa. It's nice when uh, there are good stories that I can use too. And this story is about a football coach at a Christian school in Grapevine, Texas a Christian school called Grapevine Faith, and they were scheduled to play a football game against Gainesville State School. The two teams had never played before, and Grapevine Faith was 7-2 and going into the game, and Gainesville was 0-8. In fact, the Gainesville team had only scored two touchdowns all season. That's how bad they were. You see, Gainesville is a maximum security correctional facility north of Dallas. And on their team, they have 14 young men. They don't have very good equipment. they got some old used helmets and shoulder pads and things like that. And when they go out to play a game, they're accompanied by 12 uniformed officers who go to the game with them. Well, Coach Hogan, who's the coach of the Christian school, had an idea. He said, what if half our fans, for one night only, would cheer for the other team. And so he sent out an email to people in the community and through the school to do just that. He said, here's the message I want you to send. I want you to encourage those young men on the other team that you are just as valuable as any other person on planet Earth. Some people were kind of confused by this. In fact, one of his own players on his team walked into Coach Hogan's office and said, Coach, why are we doing this? And Hogan said, well, imagine if you didn't have a home life. Imagine if everybody had pretty much given up on you. Now imagine what it would mean for hundreds of people to suddenly believe in you. Well, the next thing you knew, the Gainesville Tornadoes were turning around, and on their bench they saw something they had never seen before. There were hundreds of fans and actual cheerleaders cheering for them. In fact, before the game began, when they ran out on the field, there were fans who were lying in the field so they could run through and give them high fives. And they had never had anything happen like that. One of the players on that team named Alex said, I thought maybe they were confused. He said, you know, they started yelling defense when their team had the ball. And I said, what's that? Why are they cheering for us? It was a strange experience for boys who most people... Across the street to avoid. We can tell people are a little afraid of us when we come to the game, said Gerald, a lineman who's going to serve more than three years in that correctional facility. You can see it in their eyes. They're looking at us like we're criminals. But these people, they were yelling for us by our names. And maybe it figures that the Gainesville players played better than they had all season, scoring the game's last two touchdowns. 
Of course, this might have been because Hogan put his third-string nose tackle at safety and his third-string cornerback at defensive end. The Christian school would win the game 33-14, to but you would have thought that the other team had won. In fact, that night they gave their coach a little Gatorade shower with their squirt bottles. Probably the first time an 0-9 team had ever given their coach that kind of celebration. After the game, both teams gathered in the middle of the field to pray, and that's when Isaiah, one of the team members, surprised everybody by asking if he could pray. And he said this, Lord, I don't know how this happened, so I don't know how to say thank you, but I never would have known there were so many people in the world that cared about us. It was a good thing that everybody's heads were bowed because they might have seen Coach Hogan wiping away tears. As the tornadoes walked back to the bus under guard, they were each handed a bag for the ride home. A burger, some fries, soda, some candy, a Bible, and an encouraging letter from a faith player. The Gainesville coach saw Hogan and he grabbed him hard by the shoulders and he said, You will never know what your people did for these kids tonight. You will never, ever know. As the bus pulled away, all of the Gainesville players crammed to one side. They pressed their hands to the window and stared at these people they'd never met before, watching their waves and smiles disappear into the night. What a great story. You know, here was a coach who saw himself as a representative of Jesus Christ, who had kind of a crazy idea that probably hadn't heard somebody else do, but thought, what if we did this? What if we did this? Only God knows how He's going to use that for eternity in the lives of those young men. We need more people like that. We need people in our community. We need people in our church who see themselves of Jesus as representatives of Jesus Christ wherever you are. Whether it's in school or in your place of work or in your neighborhood. Whether you are a coach on a team or a teacher in a school or you're a businessman in the community. We need people who will think creatively and look at themselves as a witness for Jesus Christ. And really it's unlimited what can happen. I mean, what could you do as a follower of Christ? Maybe you could throw a party in your neighborhood and invite people that you don't normally invite. Maybe you could organize a group to help feed the hungry, whether it's through our local food shelf or an inner city ministry. Maybe you could mentor a child or youth who is in trouble and needs someone in their life to be a role model for them. Maybe you could help the homeless. Maybe you could be a blessing in the life of someone you know, that, whether they're elderly or young. Or maybe you could fill in the blank with your own idea and say, God, how could you use me? What would you want me to do? In fact, I was thinking about this. I thought that would be great. We ought to give a prize for the most creative idea here. That somebody takes and says, you know what? What if? And it might be your small group, or it might be an ABF, or it might be something we could do as a church that says, God, we want to step out in our community and make a difference for Jesus Christ. You see, the question that this text asks is who's going to tell them? I mean, how are people going to ever hear about Jesus Christ unless somebody takes the initiative to be a friend or to walk across the room or to reach out a hand and build a relationship? 
truth of the matter is that God wants to use you and He wants to use me to be that witness for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I get excited when I think about this. You know, when I I think of what could happen if everyone in our church were to put this before Your throne and say, God, how could You use me? What is it that I could do to serve You in my neighborhood or where we work or where I go to school? And if they were to step out on faith to reach one or two or a handful or others that they've chosen as an assignment for them, God, You could make a huge difference in our community. You could transform our schools. Jesus Christ could become an issue. There could be people who would come into the kingdom that we never thought would have an interest in Jesus Christ. But they do. And it's just because someone's never really reached out to them. Lord, help us to be bold in our witness and to take the things that we've heard today and to put them into action. And we will give you the praise and glory for what you're going to do. Amen. Amen. You see, God is sovereignly at work in our world, and He is calling people to Himself. But He's called us to be a part of that process. Who will tell them if we don't? God wants to use you in that process. Let's pray. You know, Father, I would love it as a pastor if every one of the people in our church would take this to heart and think of someone that they know that they could reach out to bring the gospel to. You could double the size of our church if we would simply just invite somebody to come. You could change the tone of a community or a workplace or a school if students and adults would look at their opportunities differently and say, Jesus, what do you want to do here in our community or in our school? And if, in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, you would give them a dream that comes from you, how great it would be to see the fruit of that. Father, help us. Help us to be bold as witnesses for Jesus Christ and to follow you wherever you lead. And we ask it in your name. Amen.